here with my old colleague, Peter Victor. Uh, Peter Victor um, is the author of uh, Managing Without Growth, Slower by Design and Not Disaster. The second edition just came out last year. Um, Peter, I want to start with just you're an eco, you consider yourself an ecological economist, right? Yeah, that's right. So, what is that? What is that field? Why is that important? <clears throat> well, ecological economists, um, like all groups of academics, have a, have a lot of disagreements. But I think the one thing that we all agree on is that in order to understand an economy, you have to understand it as being embedded in the biosphere. What that means is that um, an economy, any economy, has to obtain its resources from outside itself. We call that the biosphere, the planet, whatever. Um, those resources are used uh, and ultimately discarded as waste products back into the biosphere. So we talk about the material and energy throughput of an economy. And um, the reason why this is so important is because the scale of our economy, and speaking very generally here, the world economy, and of course there are huge differences uh, in the way that's experienced in different parts of the world, but speaking generally, the global economy is now extracting such prodigious quantities of materials and disposing of such enormous quantities of waste that we have two very important sets of problems. We have concerns about whether we can continue to, con to keep extracting materials at this increasing rate. Uh, and we're also concerned, of course, about the impacts on the biosphere of disposing of all of these wastes. I just have to mention uh, climate change is the most obvious example. And so ecological economists always, we're doing our, our work properly, never lose sight of the fact of the economy being fundamentally dependent on the biosphere. And that's really what distinguishes, I think, from, from other other economists who pay less attention to that. So I've, I've heard the term, I've heard the term like the envelope, the biological envelope or the biospheric envelope. So the idea is the e economic activities take place inside of this, this envelope and can't exceed it. Well, that's the key. Yes, that's, that's, that's fundamental to it. But you know, um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of economics students are introduced to the subject as if the economy is some sort of freestanding set of institutions dominated by the market and buying and selling. And all of that's very important, but without paying attention to this continual requirement for resources and energy to keep the system going. And so that's what so makes ecological economists different. If you're not an ecological economist, you, I guess, believe maybe you don't know you believe this, but you believe that the resources kind of come into being when we discover them and that uh, we'll always be able to find new ways and new technologies to address problems, right? Like that's what I hear from, for example, like Silicon Valley arg arguments, right? It's like, well, there we're everything that we have comes from innovation. Uh, not really nature. Like we we create we make natural resources into being when we start to use them, and we'll always be able to solve those problems. What do you how how do you think of how do you respond to that kind of thing? Well, well yes, of course that that argument's often stated either explicitly or it's just assumed that that technology, if you like, will always find a way to resolve these kinds of resource uh, issues and, and waste product issues. Um, th 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 I, I really like technology. We're making good use of it right now, I hope, in this, uh, in this podcast. But 
if you look at the data, let's say go back through the whole 20th century, you, it's, it's absolutely clear there's been a phenomenal increase in the resources required to keep the economies going and growing. And all and the 20th century was characterized by the most amazing uh, developments in technology. So you, you have to wonder um, if technology is the answer, why are, why are we increasingly drawing on the biosphere for all of these materials. Now, the answer could be, well, we, we, we can switch from one to the other as one becomes scarce, we invent a new technology and, uh, and away we go. Um, but if that was the case, then why, why is climate change a problem? Why, why wasn't this resolved by technological change a long time ago? It's not as if um, we haven't known it's been a problem and a, a problem has been coming. So we, the argument that technology can somehow always be relied on to, to get us out of of this predicament, uh, I think, uh, hasn't hasn't stood the test of time, contrary to the technological optimists, and uh, and it's just too much to rely out in the future. Now, can I just have one more point to that? You of see, course, what yeah. ecological economists say in terms of what we should do is we say, well, we need to impose our own socially determined limits on the extent to which we keep going back to nature and taking resources. And our, our response to the technological optimists is to say, look, you should be on side with that because if you're right, the technology will provide the answer, then by limiting our use of these resources, that will increase their price. That will provide exactly the incentive we need for people to develop the kind of technologies that you say are going to solve the problem. So we ought not to be disagreeing on this kind of issue where the disagreement comes is is when the, the technological optimist says we actually don't have to do anything just technology will somehow magically solve the problem what ecological economist says no that's most unlikely to happen and it's a and, and, and here's a no-lose um proposition if it's going to happen anyway then limiting the supply of resources will not hurt anybody and uh, and may in fact be necessary to make it happen but unfortunately we we have more debates about these things than we re really ought to Right. Okay. So if technology isn't going to solve the problem automatically, uh, the other thing that all, that always comes up is growth. And so I, I thought your book in the second edition, but I mean, you, you first made the arguments quite some time ago, um, managing without growth is a very eloquent answer to that. So let's let's talk about growth because in some ways it is the fundamental idea that um, that keeps taking us back to see, take more and more resources, right? Is that we have to continuously grow the economy. So where where does growth fit in? in ecological economics, in your thinking, and also in the economy um, generally? Well, it's a big question you've asked. Um, Hello, one, of, have time. one of the things yeah. that uh, ecological economists do, and this is very much a contribution of Herman Daly, one of the founders of ecological economics, is to make a distinction between growth and development. Now, it's, growth uh, he defines in qu entirely quantitative terms. So when we talk about an economy growing, in, in this sense, it, it, it's using more and more resources. Whereas development, he defines in qualitative terms. Development is all about making a better use of whatever resources uh, you have to improve quality of life. Uh, now, that distinction isn't made anywhere near as clearly 
in uh, conventional economics. Uh, when we talk about economic growth, we almost always mean an increase in the in gross domestic product in GDP, and that's simply an increase in the value of things that are bought uh, in the final stages of of production. So bought by consumers, bought by government, uh, bought by businesses when they buy equipment. Um, now, where the so so they that and they and that's measured in in money terms. Well, of course, money is not subject to the physical laws that govern the conservation of mass. You can expand the money supply. So it all gets a bit confusing. It's as if GDP can grow even if the, its material requirements uh, stay constant or shrink. So there's plenty of room for debate here. Again, I look at the history and see that uh, there's been a very close relationship. It's not one-to-one, -one, but it's a close relationship between the increase in economic growth as measured by uh, GDP and an increase in the requirement for materials. So, as I say, there's plenty of room for debate, but I think the ecological economists are clearer in, in how we dif distinguish between growth and development. So we know when we're talking about growth, we mean physical growth. And when we're talking about development, we means qualitative, qualitative improvements. Uh, we avoid this kind of conflation of, quant of quantity and quality into the single measure. So in managing without growth, of course, it's now, I've now confused the matter because what kind of growth are we talking about? Well, my real interest is in managing without growth in terms of our use of physical resources. In fact, I think we have to see a reduction in that if we're going to take the pressure off nature and all the damages we're doing to the earth. Um, but we don't measure this material throughput very well. Uh, and so, and most economic policy, most policies are directed at GDP. So what I have been writing about and my, and the, the modeling that I do is looking at what would happen in an economy like Canada if growth in GDP was to end. And uh, so now we can tie back to the technological stuff we were talking about before. If technology is making us more efficient, in other words, we use less resources for a certain outcome, and GDP is not growing anymore, then that means that the material requirements of the, of the economy will will be in decline. And that's a good thing. So that's, it's that sort of combination, if you like, of, of, of issues, quantitative growth, growth in GDP, and technological change that offers us, I believe, a, a, a much brighter future if we were to manage without growth in, in both senses of that term, uh, rather than looking to continued economic growth as a, as a, as a solution to all of our problems, which is typically the outlook of, of, of unfortunately, um, most economists, and I have to say most policymakers. So it's the measurement, <clears throat> the importance of what it is that you're measuring really comes out strongly. Like you talk about GDP, the gross uh, domestic product or the gross national product. Um, but you've also looked at other indicators, right? Like um, the ecological footprint or a genuine progress indicator. Do you think that using how, to what are the what are the values and limitations of trying to use other indicators like that in your experience? Yes. Well, I I have looked at a, a number of these that have been uh, suggested and experimented with, um, and each uh, conveys some 
information that's not conveyed properly or at all in gross domestic product. So to that extent, I think they add to our understanding of, of what's happening. Um, but they, they also entail their own shortcomings. And so I think the, the way forward, of course, is not to rely on any one indicator of something as complex as the human economy uh, the human society, if you like. And after all, we use GDP not just to tell us how the economy is doing, but we also sort of say, well, if the economy is growing, GDP is growing, that probably means the society is, is, is getting better off. Um, we're talking about a, a very complicated set of interrelated systems and to try to judge how well that, that they are doing in terms of just one measure, it, it strikes me as a bit silly. Anyone who's <laughs> been or driven an automobile realizes that just to operate a car, you've got about four or five different um, indicators on your dashboard. Uh, we, we need, in other words, we need a set to be uh, of indicators to look at. And to be fair, as I try to be, uh, economists, uh, not of my ilk, do look at a range of measures. They look at unemployment, they look at inflation, they might look at interest rates. GDP is just sort of the, the one that seems to be considered most important. Um, so yes, in some I, ways, I, by politicians more than economists, right? Like it's politicians who like to come out and say we've had growth. Look at the growth. Uh, uh, certainly, they like to say that, but they they're picking it up from economists who tell them that this is a good thing. Uh, right. I, I don't think that you can. I mean, how can I say the politicians didn't invent GDP, though they found right. uses for it. And, you know, it's interesting, people perhaps don't realize this, but GDP was really first introduced properly in the in the Second World War, when the Allied countries wanted to get a better idea of what their economies could produce if they were operating at full tilt, because this was just after, just at the tail end of the Great Depression. And, uh, and so these measures were a uh, measure of output, measure of GDP, uh, was very, very important. And, um, and uh, then you had the work of, of John Maynard Keynes, the, the British economist, who, contrary to most of his colleagues, said unemployment was not an in inevitable uh, uh, outcome, that if government stepped in when the private sector wasn't spending enough uh, and just spent money, it could uh, reduce the rate of unemployment. And the World, World War II experience very much showed that unemployment went essentially to, to zero or close to it. And so after the Second World War, um, many Western countries, Canada, US, Britain, Australia, uh, passed legislation in which governments more or less said, we'll take responsibility for ensuring full employment. And then what happened was some very bright economists realized that if you spent money this year, and that included money spent on new equipment, new buildings, expanded the capacity of the economy to produce, then you had to spend even more money in subsequent years to keep it all fully employed. Meanwhile, the labor force might be growing through population growth. And so they went from spending money to create full employment to spending money to ensure full employment over time, which meant economic growth. Then we entered the period of the Cold War, when uh, growth seemed to be necessary, economic growth, in order to win the arms race, the space race, and so on. And uh, we've never looked back since then. Economic growth has became a, a top priority, and, and it stayed there. Now, I think we've reached the period, in fact, we entered it some time ago, when this pursuit of economic growth has done two things. One is it's, it's put increasing pressure on the biosphere, which we can now no longer 
tolerate. We're exceeding a number of so-called planetary boundaries. And secondly, I think it's allowed us, speaking generally, to not address problems specifically as much as we should, instead to say, well, as long as the economy grows, things will be taken care of. The, the, the classic example of that is, uh, is income distribution and, and poverty and inequality. Um, because you can make the argument, I don't buy it myself, but you can make the argument that as long as the economy is expanding and some of that's trickling down, everybody's getting better off, we don't really have to worry about redistribution. Well, we've seen yeah. what happens when you do that. You get this rising inequality and, uh, and social tension and all sorts of things can, can flow from that. So this is all kind of a way of saying that the pursuit of economic growth um, is, is something that really we need to question. And I believe and through some quantitative work that I and others have done can show that, um, in fact, if even if the economy is not growing under certain conditions, certain things happening, uh, in fact, life could be a lot sweeter. Most economists that are not in in uh, your tradition will say that the best thing that uh, a government can do is to stay out of things. So, you know, low taxes, no regulation, let the market kind of take care of itself. And you, uh, in many in many different parts of managing without growth, you suggest different instruments for taxes, subsidies, regulations. So in order to manage without growth, um, you do you would you say is it fair to say you need a, a more interventionist um, way of thinking about the economy? Well, intervention can take many different forms. And I mm -hmm. think it's the it's the it's the type of intervention that we really should be discussing. I, I, as you as you realize, uh, so you're you're kind of saying all interventions always present. Well, yeah, I mean we we live yeah. in an economy yeah. in which the government intervenes all the time um, through right. Le right. legislation, taxation, subsidies, all of those things. Uh, the the additional element that uh, I look to is uh, these um, limitations on our on what we take from nature, the land that we transform. Habitat destruction, that sort of thing, um, the waste that we put we put back. I, I think if we if we were to limit those much more than we do, and let me just say as an aside, we already do place some limits on those things. I can give examples, but um, not in a not in a thoughtful, comprehensive way. If we were to do that, then I would be less concerned about what the market does because it would be doing that, whatever it does, within the constraints of the self-imposed uh, uh, limits. But because you see the market itself, the mar capitalism, market, whatever terminology you want to use, does not have within its ambit information about the scale of the economy. So when you go shopping, I go shopping, I can't really express any kind of desire to limit the scale of the economy, all I can do through my purchases, maybe pay some attention to where things might be made or what waste products might be generated. But it's all very marginal, very micro. We need, I believe, um, the society as a whole, which is through through, through our government, to place these um, boundaries around us that prevent uh, these excess, excessive use of, the, of nature to support human life. Like in the States, they they think of themselves as intervening very little in the economy, but that's that's not actually the case, right? There's still a wide range of interventions that the government does in the economy. 
Well, that, that's true. I mean, look, the the US, um, if you look at all the, the, the US governments, state governments, federal government, local governments, and look at their total expenditures, it accounts for a very considerable proportion of gross domestic product. I won't give a number because I don't, I don't, I don't have an accurate number uh, in front of me. And it is slightly lower than some other countries, but it's well up there. I mean, it's a very, very substantial proportion of GDP. The, the notable difference, of course, is the mixture. They have a huge military. And so a large part of their government expenditure goes on, on, on the military. And that makes the US economy behave and look quite different from, from other um, developed countries. The way markets set prices. So like there's lots of, again, different ways of thinking about what a market is and what a market does. One of the ways economists think of it is as a price setting mechanism. And then you discuss in, in your book, like all the things, all the conditions that have to exist for prices to convey accurate information. If you can talk about that, I think it'll set up the discussion for natural capital valuation. And Well, well uh, there's a, a long list, <laughs> list of them. Um, okay, so look, uh, when students are introduced to economics, they're introduced to something called perfect competition. It's kind of like the ideal um, structure. There are certain circumstances required for perfect competition to exist. I'll, I can't remember them all, but uh, perfect knowledge is one. So in other words, every consumer, every customer in the market is assumed to have perfect knowledge of everything that's for sale and the prices that they're for sale at. Well, let's <laughs> yeah. think about that. Secondly, the preferences of of, of people and, and preferences in, in, in economics means that it's assumed that people can put everything that's available for sale in an order of preference, um, uh, everything, uh, and that these. Pre- I like I like bananas more than I like coffee, and I like coffee yeah. more than I like cell phones. Yes, yeah. uh, and that once more, <laughs> those preferences are fixed. Now that yeah. takes some thinking about. When we know we have a huge um, advertising marketing industry, uh, whose job is to change preferences. Uh, so that's that. That's another condition, though, or another assumption that's made in perfect competition. Preferences are fixed. Um, uh, by the way, that also uh, kind of intrigued me when I was a student of economics. I, I began to realize that economists assumed that everybody was a, was an adult. You're born an adult and you die an adult. The whole process of <laughs> socialization of children was sort of somehow not included. And that socialization, of course, is all about preference formation. That's why you have different cultures where people value different things. Anyway, the theory of perfect competition abstracts from from, from all of that. Another condition is there are no... Um, no monopolies, not even any powerful companies. We call them oligopolies. But every company is a, is a very small company uh, that has no control over its price. Everybody gets to take the price that is determined in the market. So it's a kind of assumption of powerlessness. So there's, no, there's, no, no, there's no focus of power, locus of power in, in the perfect Economy. Same with buyers. Nobody is, has a lot of, enough money that they can somehow have an impact on the market. Well, anyway, these are some of the main conditions, and uh, economists know this, and um, and will do some work, and lots been done on. Well, what happens if, if such a condition isn't satisfied? What does that mean for the prices that get determined in such a market? And this is where it it comes back to your lots question. Of- Sorry. Lots of Nobel prizes are awarded for people who just who think through what 
happens when one of these assumptions is violated, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, for example, I mentioned that um, everybody, it's assumed that there's full information. Well, there's interesting work that's been done on, well, what happens if the suppliers, producers have more information than the buyers? About Isn't the product they're selling. Isn't that was Stiglitz. Yeah, got got yeah, the right, Nobel yeah. Prize for that. Or the, the Nobel mm-hmm. Memorial Prize, to give it its proper name. Okay, so within perfect competition, you can say that the prices that then would prevail in such a, such a system uh, would convey valid and useful information to both the buyer and the seller. Well, well okay, let me, let me give uh, an example here. If um, the production of something gives rise to environmental pollution, which is very common, uh, and that pollution is unpriced, uh, it's just not, it doesn't enter the, the cost calculation of the company, then the product will be sold at a price that uh, can be a lot less than the actual cost of producing it because the environmental effects have been missed out. This is a, a problem really right across the economy because all prices are interrelated if if you buy electricity from a company that's burnt coal in order to generate electricity and they're selling you the electricity quite cheaply because they don't take account of the environmental damage done by the the emissions from the coal combustion then you then buy electricity cheaply it allows you then to sell your products more cheaply than they would otherwise be sold at that means that buyers will buy more of them because they're cheaper and and so there's no within that system there's no solution to the environmental problem the, the solution has to come from some far, form of constraint can be a and the various kinds on the emissions and that will f- factor through the prices well we have all sorts of situations in the in the red economy where there are these kinds of uh, side effects that are not included and so mm-hmm. the price the information contained in the market prices is uh, is unreliable and there's an even deeper issue which I think you get at in your recent paper um, in the journal ecosystem services which is that even if you were selling at the right price um, in terms of costing um, the environmental damage from producing the power, that you can't necessarily always substitute money um, for some of these so-called ecosystem services, right? So um, if you don't mind, I'm going to read you your own paper. Um, Okay. The the valuation of unpriced ecosystem services in monetary terms is built on the assumption that uh, the value uh, that values derived through surveys or imputed from observed behavior or estimated as the cost of providing them through artificial means can be compared with market prices. And then you go into some detail about. Um, you give a, a case like if a piece of land generates ecosystem services valued at a million per year in an undeveloped state and would generate a rent of 1.5 million per year if built on, then by this logic, social welfare welfare would be increased if the land was, quote unquote, developed. And that's a huge problem, right? I mean, well, OK, so, so I'll... <laughs> Let me comment on those words. Um, <laughs> those those <laughs> prescient and insightful words. Yeah. Uh, when everything is compared in money terms, it's assumed that 
one thing can be substituted for another. You see, this comes back to that example we were discussing before about the, the bananas and the apples or what have you. When they're priced in dollars, then consumers can choose between them and make some judgment as to what's the best way to spend their money. Uh, so it, it assumes that, well, they like both apples and what was it? And, and bananas, but they'll find the right balance to give them the best outcome. So when when people estimate money values for um, services obtained from nature, which are unpriced, it's it's there's a prior assumption that once you've estimated the money value, uh, that means that you've now worked out the rate at which the the service obtained from the environment can be substituted. Uh, for with the service uh, uh, with the service of something you buy in the shops, and so there's this. Um, so whenever you you, in, you you engage in these monetary valuations of nature, you've accepted as a as an assumption that the services of nature, which are outside of the economy, are substitutable for the services of things that we buy within the economy. Now. When we're talking about very small changes, you know, an acre here or an acre more or less, uh, that may not be such a bad assumption. But when we right. when we think Maybe about you can reforest some, some, some somewhere else. But when you talk about um, all forest land, um, can, you know, uh, you put a, a dollar value on that. Are we are we prepared to say, well, we'll just get rid of all of the forests in Canada? Yeah. And it's and it's only worth five, whatever, fifty billion dollars, and and we'll go we'll go shopping. I mean, that's it's kind of absurd. I saw I saw an estimate. I was reading the uh, IPCC report on land, special report on land uh, in the summer. It came out in August, and there was a valuation. I think it was seventy-two trillion dollars uh, of the entire uh, Earth's ecosystem services. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. So all I need is seventy-two trillion dollars, and I can buy another Earth. Yes, yes. If one was for sale, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, who's selling? Give, any, who's selling Earths right now? I'll give you another example. Um, on several occasions, quite eminent economists have have looked at the effects of climate change on the economy and said, well, one of the sectors that could be quite adversely affected is agriculture. Then they said, well, even if agriculture was reduced by 50%, since it only accounts for 3% of GDP, uh, you'd hardly notice it, especially in a growing oh, economy. No. And, and, and you know, you oh, think, but, but we're living beings. We need our food. The, yeah, only reason, gonna... the only reason why you get a low value of agriculture in GDP is because of the low, low food prices. But if you got rid of, you lost half of the output of agriculture, food prices would skyrocket. And it would no longer be three percent. So I mean, the, the monetization of nature is fraught with so many pitfalls um, that uh, I'm very skeptical that these sums, no matter how carefully done, uh, don't convey useful information for aiding us when we want to make decisions. And that's what it's all about. There's the benefit-cost analysis, willingness to pay, willingness to accept. So, so benefit-cost analysis actually refers to a whole set of, of estimation tools. It was developed uh, originally in the 30s, I think, by the Corps of Engineers in the U.S. who wanted to make better decisions about 
uh, what rivers to dam, whether to build a dam or not, and how big it should be. So these were very specific project-based decisions that they they thought would they could do better if they looked at all of the benefits from building a dam and all of the costs. And some of those benefits and costs wouldn't show up in market transactions. So they developed this thing called benefit-cost analysis for those very micro-based decisions. Well, um, what's happened over, over the decades that have passed in centers some economists have become incredibly ambitious in the use of essentially the same tools for analyzing even things like the, the damage from climate change. Um, one fundamental assumption in benefit-cost analysis as originally conceived and as properly practiced is that all prices are unaffected except perhaps the price of the thing that the project will affect. So if you have a dam that's going to generate electricity, well, there may be by increasing the supply of electricity, the price of electricity would fall. But it would assume that the dam would have no effect on the price of concrete or on the price of anything else in the economy. I say concrete because dams are often made out of concrete. Um, well, that assumption just does not stand up when you look at something like climate change, which will affect all prices throughout throughout the global economy. Uh, and yet they still insist on using it. Now, where does willingness to pay and willingness to accept come in? So the way I've always understood benefit-cost analysis, and I had some very fine teachers in my years of trading as an economist, is that what you try to do is to answer the following question. You're looking at something where it's the market is not handling it properly. Construction of a dam would be one because there are so many aspects that would not be captured by uh, by market transactions. And you ask the question, if all of those who would gain from the dam would be willing to pay X amount and those who are going to lose from the dam uh, would require Y, is X bigger than Y? And if X is bigger than Y, in other words, the willingness to pay of the gainers would exceed the willingness to accept of the losers, then if that was a real market transaction, the, the deal would be made, the dam would get built. Um, but the deal, of course, is even with the benefit-cost analysis, you don't actually pay the money. You just do the estimate of what the willingness to pay is and alternatively the willingness to accept the damages. Um, now, uh, let me give you another, uh, another scenario. Suppose we have... Um, uh, a piece of land that's um, held publicly and a consideration is being given to putting a road through it. Is the way to value this in money terms to ask or to try to find an answer to the question, what are those who will gain from the road willingness to pay for the, for the road? Uh, and what are those who don't want a road willing to accept in compensation? Or, should it be the should it we could ask a different question we could say well no nobody really owns this land so shouldn't we be asking what the people who don't want the road are willing to pay not to have a road and what would the those who want the road be willing to accept not to have the road built well you can begin to see i hope that depending on how you frame this you can get two very different answers and so with benefit cost analysis you have to make some prior assumption well, one way of looking at it is to make a prior assumption as to the property rights. Who owns what? Well, this isn't economic analysis anymore. This is, I don't know, public policy, uh, something that people could argue about. Um, uh, but, but the point is that benefit-cost analysis itself does not give us an answer to that kind of question. Uh, and a third, a third way of 
of estimating the benefits from something that people use is to say, well, look, we get certain environmental benefits from nature. What would it cost us if we built something that delivered those same benefits through an engineering device? So we might get some kind of free water um, cleansing through natural processes, um, but we can also build a, a water treatment plant that would do the same thing. And then they would say, well, then the value of that service uh, is no greater than what it would cost to build an engineering alternative. So here's a third basis for measuring the monetary value of, of, the, of the environmental services. And again, you, you can get a different answer. One of the points I make in that article, though, is often in, in comprehensive studies, what people do is they take some willingness to pay estimates, some willingness to accept estimates, some engineering estimates, and add them all together because they're all in money terms. So it looks like you can add them. And my concern is you've just kind of lost whatever meaning those dollar values yeah. might have contained because they've, no, they've, they've been estimated on different uh, assumptions. And there's no rigor, and so if you you can you can bounce around methods until you get an answer that you like in some ways. Oh, I don't know if I'd I'd accuse people of doing that, but I take your point. No, no, that would be that would be a bridge too far. Well, I, I, that never that it, never happens. It reminds me of something I heard from a a civil servant who made a distinction between evidence based decision making. In decision-based evidence-making. <laughs> yes, decision-based <laughs> evidence-making. It's perfect. That's perfect. Um, so, um, and then on top of all of that, there's another problem you discuss, which is the difficulty in defining what capital is. So there's a problem you cite uh, Nadal, who, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to quote your quote here. The word capital has two different meanings in economic theory. It denotes a sum of money, and it also serves to designate a set of machines, tools, and other heterogeneous production instruments. There is no physically homogeneous and malleable substance called capital that can be applied to the production of all kinds of goods, but you kind of have to assume that there is that. So... Well, this all comes back to the um, reasonably common use of the term natural capital. Uh, and I, I, let me say a, a few words about that. There are some, some similarities between uh, the way we interact with nature. We, we regard nature as an asset, as a, a source of supply. I've probably used some of that language myself, even in this discussion. Um, and when we think about it within an economic system, economists use the word capital first and foremost to refer to the things that we build, like the, the buildings, the equipment that we put in the buildings and so on. This, this is the real capital of an economy. And, and uh, in the last um, couple of decades in particular, um, quite a few economists and others have, have thought it useful to refer to nature as natural capital. So then we have our produced capital, and we have nature, which we'll now call natural capital. And if we value both in dollar terms, we can then start talking about, well, maybe we should be protecting natural capital and having less physical capital, produced capital, we could make some more rational decisions. And, and you there's can that really kind of the rhetorical element of it, which is what most people will, will say to defend it is, you know, it's a really big number. So just being able to put out a really big number can maybe wake people up to the fact that nature is really important. Well, 
Yes, but but you called it rhetorical. That's what I would call it. It's good rhetoric, and it and it can be useful in winning an argument. But you didn't actually arrive at your position by doing an analysis of natural capital. This is a case of of um, decision based evidence making. Uh, at least there's the risk of that. So um, what I do in the article you're referring to is I, I I give a number of reasons why I think it can be quite dangerous, counterproductive even, to conceive of nature as natural capital. You've already uh, given back to me the example in, in my paper that uh, uh, if you look at a piece of land in its undeveloped stage as natural capital, providing habitat, if you like, for species, and you value that at a million dollars, but somebody else says, well, I'll pay $2 million in order to build uh, some building on it. Well, then the, by that accounting, uh, it would be built uh, and you've you've lost the natural capital and you there's no money paid to anybody as a result of that. It's just uh, it was just done to to help you with the decision. Um, if if people think that valuing nature in terms of money is is going to automatically lead to environmental protection, uh, I think that's that's not necessarily the case. Just because of the example that I gave you, and what's more, once you've entered into that, once you've entered into that arena, and you said this is a reasonable way to to compare nature with what we produce um then you've lost you, you've no basis then at the end of the calculations like oh dear uh, sorry that we still don't want to see the the, the building built and the, and the and the and the area destroyed so i don't think that um the information contained in these estimates of natural capital in money terms uh, is reliable enough and meaningful enough that we should allow it to be such a powerful guide in in making decisions as to how to interact with nature. I think we, I think there are many other sources of information. You were asking me about that before uh, that we can use. There are many quite different approaches. I think the humanities has a lot to offer, along with um, with the more sort of um, traditional economics to help us think about the the value of nature and and, and so on. And I uh, so I'm not a great fan of the monetization of nature. However, uh, there's a lot of very important information. And I, going back to your first question to me about what it is to say you're an ecological economist, there's quantitative information about the use we make of nature uh, that can enhanced decision making it doesn't have to be put in monetary terms uh to have the best effect and so i I, i'm quite happy to work with people who do quantitative research on the human interaction with nature but i'm much happier when i'm getting information from them in terms of physical quantities uh specific species um that sort of thing rather than just trying to put everything into dollar terms um, supposedly conveying all the information that's necessary to make the right decision. So a lot of what we've been talking about is having a context for the study of an economy and having a context for economic theory, because I noticed that you use a lot of the, like you, you're not a whole, you don't wholesale discard um, any of the methods that economists use, like supply, demand, um, or any of that, those concepts, even GDP, you just want to see it in a natural envelope, you want to use it with other tools, you want to be able to use it in context. Oh, yeah, that's very well put, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was trained as an economist, I have a PhD in economics from a very reputable school. Uh, I've worked as an 
economist in many capacities in government, as a consultant, uh, an academic. So I, 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 and that's why sometimes I hesitate even to describe myself as an ecological economist because sometimes it, it, it gives the impression you're not a real economist. Yeah, you're um, just an economist. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I'm quite happy to say I'm an economist who works on environmental issues and energy issues. But uh, on the other hand, there's now a brand, there's a group, there's a, we have a society, we have a, a journal, um, uh, we have uh, academic programs teaching ecological economics. So yeah, I, I, I identify with that too. All right. Thank you very much, Peter. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome.